Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. Let us open our Bibles to the 10th chapter of Romans, beginning with verse 1, reading through to verse 4. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. For Moses writes that the man who practices righteous, the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness, but the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead, but what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, thank you for your word. Open our hearts up. Expose them by the work of your spirit that we may see more our need and sin and more the holiness and righteousness of your law and of your perfections. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So the Apostle Paul is turning again and again to the matter of the rejection of Jesus by his people, the Jews. And it's most notable at this time because the church doesn't have Jews in it. I mean, there are some Jews, but... Look, taken as a whole, there are very few. And so most of the people who are in the church that Jesus started, and you have to remember, Jesus is the Messiah, most of the people there are Gentiles. They're filthy going. And the, the clean, the pristine, the chosen people of God are absent. It's a great scandal. It's a scandal that's pervasive across the New Testament. And so he is writing a particular church here, the Church of Rome, and hence the name of the book, Romans. And there it's the same as in all the churches, the Jews, the inheritors of God's promises to the patriots, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, have rejected the very Messiah promised them by God through his servants, the prophets. How can this be? How can God's people reject the one sent from heaven to save them? And so this is a question the Apostle Paul has been dealing with through much of these middle chapters of Romans, and he continues to provide the answer in our passage this morning. But first, a question. As I already asked, how could God's people reject the one sent from heaven to save them? (laughs) I mean, they all counted the messianic promises. They all knew that the prophets were promising a Messiah. They all knew that God was going to save them, that the Messiah was coming. So how did they reject him? And the answer to that question is found by asking another question. What precisely did the Jews want to be saved from? (laughs) You know... 
And listen, the minute I say that, you know where I'm headed? You know where I'm headed? Another way of asking this is, if God sent a Savior to the Christians in the United States today, what kind of a Savior would we want? Well, pretty much the same kind of Savior the Jews wanted at the time of Jesus. They had seen a succession of their fellow Jews rise up and lead rebellions against filthy, dirty, oppressive, decadent Rome. Their resident evil... Rome's communications were corrupt. Rome's tax collectors were corrupt. Rome's local governors were corrupt. Rome's soldiers were corrupt. You remember John the Baptist responding to the tax collectors and the soldiers when they said to him, you're telling us to repent. What are we to do? And you remember Jesus says in Luke 3, 12 to 14, and some tax collectors also came to be baptized. And they said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Roman taxes are theft by other means. The redistribution of wealth is not allowed. But that's actually not what he said. What he actually said was, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what you have been ordered to. (laughs) Oh my goodness, think of the chance John the Baptist missed there. He could have just gotten on his theodomistic hobby horse and displayed Herb Schlossberg's great erudition which, by the way, is great and is erudition. And then some soldiers were questioning him, saying, and what about us? What shall we do? And he, John the Baptist, said to them, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. And so, you know, these are two of the authorities in the life of the local Jew by virtue of the power and the authority of Rome, of Washington, D.C. And imagine that the um, pervasive sins of the tax collectors is that they took more than they were allowed, than they had been ordered to. And the pervasive sin of the military that was occupying the land, is that they took money by force from the people and that they accused people falsely and that they were discontent when it came to their wages. Okay? Now, how obnoxious is Rome? I mean, if if that's just the tax collectors and the soldiers, how obnoxious was Rome? The Jews wanted a man who would rid them of Rome's rule and redistribution of their wealth and filthy sexual sins 
and marriages prevailing over them in their former capital city, Jerusalem, and also in the surrounding Judea. Which is to say the people of God living in Jerusalem and the surrounding Judean world wanted what? They wanted political salvation. They wanted freedom from the oppression of Rome. They would have followed Jesus, and he would have lived to universal acclaim had he given them the sort of saving that they wanted, which was military and political. But instead, Jesus was the savior of their souls. (laughs) And as they saw it, their souls didn't need saving. What needed saving was their political freedoms, their money, and the dignity of their city of David. It was their peculiar habits of washing and observing the Sabbath and eating and worshiping that needed saving from the corruption of their powerful foreign occupier. As they saw it, Jesus was not the Savior that they needed. They didn't need moral reformation or the salvation of their souls. They were good enough for God. If only Rome would leave them alone to be good enough. And does this sound familiar? It ought to. We each would do well today to ask ourselves what our real burden has been this past year. COVID, is that what we've needed saving from? Our local health commissioners? Are they whom we've needed saving from? Our state governor and his assembly and health advisors? Are they whom we've needed saving from? If God sent us a savior today whose message was summed up as John the Baptist and Jesus were at the beginning of the Gospels, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, would we repent? Would we follow a Savior who saved us from our sins, or would we, in today's climate, oppressed by the seaboard states and cities, and particularly Washington, D.C., tell such a Savior that he was no earthly good? That we already had our God and our churches and our righteousness, And what we really needed from him was to break us free from the oppressive evil influence of the federal government. (laughs) Now, those of you who who aren't normally here, just remember that I try to preach to myself. This is not accusatory to you. This is accusatory to me and you're welcome to listen in. Now notice we have not said that the Jews rejected Jesus' salvation and messianic reign because they didn't want moral reform and ethical goodness. Rather, what have we said? Well, we said that they placed a very high value on morality and goodness and therefore did not desire to be safe from their sins because they had that covered. Thank you very much. 
Let us remember the parable told by Jesus of the Pharisee and tax collector who were both praying in the temple. And do you remember what the context was for that parable? The context has become more important to me than the parable itself. Do you remember the context? Luke 18, beginning with verse 9, and he also told this parable. You remember it? And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. And isn't that a perfect description of Christians in America today? We're so confident that we are righteous and we look at the gays, the LGBT, the bi's, the, we look at the opioids, the, we look at Joe Biden. And it is with utter contempt. It's not with love. I defy you to say it's love, <laughs> you know. And you say, well, it's not contempt, but it's a certain... Uh, oh, lack of, uh, well, I don't know quite what it is, but it isn't contempt. You know. It's maybe a certain sort of cultivated indifference. You know, as soon as the election happened, you know what I did? I cultivated indifference. <laughs> you know, I would not read the news. I would not watch the news. I would not listen to the news. I was indifferent. And this is what it says. It says that he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Presbyterian minister and the other And so, in the time of Jesus, would people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous welcome a Messiah who came to save them, not from Rome, but from their own sins? In our own time and nation, would people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous welcome a Messiah who came to save them, not from the woke crowd and overreaching government, but from our sins? Look deep within yourself and ask whether you yourself really have any trouble at all understanding the Jews' rejection of Jesus. It didn't stroke them where they itched, did it? And so where do you itch? What gnawing pain do you suffer under? What would you gouge out your eye or cut off your hand to be done with? Would it be your sin? The Apostle Paul, as we have said, is working on explaining why the Jews rejected their Messiah, their Savior, and he's just finished saying this. So these are the four verses right before our text. He says, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. 
for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Did we hear the theme of the apostle here? Speaking of the Jews' rejection of their Savior, he explains it this way. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. (laughs) And so the Jews rejected Jesus because they did not know how infinitely holy God is. And they did not know how totally depraved they are. And they refused to subject themselves to God's righteousness. (laughs) Now listen, if you were working with your eight-year-old son and you saw this, you would know exactly what you were dealing with. But why is it that when it comes to us, I just don't see it. Why is it that parents who are so good at seeing a refusal to acknowledge the law as it is, and as the character of God is, and refusal to admit our sinfulness, why is it that we can see this with our children? And we can see when their back is stiff after we get done rebuking them. We have no question what we're looking at. They refuse to acknowledge the standard. They refuse to acknowledge their failure to keep the standard. And they will not give in. (laughs) And we see it so clearly with our children, right? Come on. It's so clear. And yet, with us, with with, with me and my eminence. So at the end of the previous service, right, I just cut it off quick. And as I do it, I take off my headpiece, right? You know, I just cut it off quick. I tie it. I'm done. And, and I look around. Where are the musicians? Where are the musicians? Come on, come on, I'm done, I'm done. Mr. Important is done. You know, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and so they aren't here. And I'm thinking, what is going on here? Where am I? You know, and dear Wayne Huck, Elder Wayne Huck is sitting there. And he says, well, it's because you took your earpiece on and they can't hear And I say, well, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I say something, you know, that's obnoxious. And all of a sudden, around the edge comes Phil Meyer, Pastor Meyer. And he's been standing right there, ready to immediately be on the platform, right? As we know Phil is, Phil is faithful. And here I am having a hissy fit, right? I mean, I didn't go on and on. I just said, well, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. But that's a hissy fit, you know. And so I go to the back, and oh, my goodness, I'm important. I'm so important. 
you know, Pastor Tallman tells me it every day, week he leaves, you're so important. <laughs> he doesn't, don't worry. And so I'm at the back, and my eminence, I have not broken any rule, and I'm a good man, and I don't need to subordinate and subject and submit and all those S words. I don't need to do none of that. And, you know, I'm at the back, and I'm thinking, I love Phil. And I just embarrassed Phil. And I've just gotten done telling us that none of us come within light years of the standards of God. But, 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 my preaching of God's word depends upon you having a high opinion of me. But there's this little voice. I don't know if it's the voice of the Holy Spirit or my mother. <laughs> because my mother <laughs> was a truth teller. And it says to me, you go up front to give the benediction and you tell the people, you sinned against Phil. You shut your mouth and tell them you're sorry. And so I did that. I came up and I said, that was wrong of me. That was sin. I'm sorry. And then I turned around after the benediction. I looked at Phil and I said, you know, Phil, I'm glad we love each other. Because love covers a multitude of sins. You know something? You can see it with me. You had no trouble understanding that story, right? It's very simple. You see it with your children. Why can't you see it with yourself? Why are we so damned intent on denying the righteousness of And, you know, you who are teenagers, don't you feel superior to me? You're the same way. As a matter of fact, it may be true that teenage years are some of the times where we're most resistant to confessing our sin and submitting, subjecting ourselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Two verses that begin the same way. For, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone. For, Moses writes. Now, um, is Eric here? Where is Eric? There he is. So at the first service, I said, I'm going to say this even though Eric isn't here. <laughs> and I want to stop and point out, it says Moses writes, okay? And if we were to take out of Scripture all the times that it says, Scripture must be fulfilled, Scripture says, God says, it says, Moses writes, there would, the, the New Testament, the Gospels particularly, would be eviscerated. They'd be decimated, and so why does he say Moses writes? Well, because it's an appeal to the authority of Scripture, okay? And so we always have to remind ourselves that to say Scripture says, Moses says, it says, and God says is to say the same thing. 
And that's the reason that Warfield titled his essay, It Says, Scripture Says, God Says. And so when we hear Moses writes, what we should all think is, oh, okay, okay, this is the word of the Lord. This is God's word. So he is appealing to God. Now, it's ironic, and I don't like the word, but it's ironic to go and see precisely what it is that he quotes from Moses. So here's the quote for Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness. And so that's the quote. Now let's hear the original. Moses wrote. That's what he wrote. Now let's go back and see what Moses wrote. Okay? And originally I was just going to read the verse. But then I thought, you know, it would be so helpful for you, for me not to just read the verse. Because it's shocking, the context for that verse. It's shocking. All right? I know it's shocking because I've done read this to my family, including my children at the dinner table as part of reading through the Pentateuch in family devotions. All right, so here it comes. You ready? Fasten your safety belts. Leviticus 18, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, okay, now this is interesting because what was it actually that the Apostle Paul wrote? He said, as Moses wrote. But what did you just hear? You heard, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying. So actually, the Apostle Paul could have said, God said. But he didn't. He said, Moses wrote. Parallel construction, just like Warfield is pointing out. All right. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you live, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes to live in accord with them. I am, in case you didn't get it the first time, I am the Lord your God. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. Uh, in case you didn't get it the first or the second time, I am the Lord. None of you shall approach any blood relative of his to uncover nakedness. <laughs> it's like, you know. Oh my goodness. In case you didn't get it the first time, the second time, the third time, I am the Lord. He says it again. You shall not uncover the nakedness of your mother, of your father, that is the nakedness of your mother. She is your mother. You are not to uncover her nakedness. Think about that. When God says to us, 
that we are to obey his law and not keep the law of the Egyptians or the Canaanites because he is the Lord, our God. And when he tells us that if we keep his law, that we will live, okay? And then he immediately goes into demands that we not uncover the nakedness of family members. Do you think there's any evangelical in the country today that thinks that's helpful? (laughs) Do you think it would make it into any children's Bible storybook? Did you know that that's what came immediately after that quote in the book of Romans? No. So why is God fixated on sex? I mean, you know, today all of us, we've risen above it. We recognize a cesspool when we see one, smell one, you know. We don't look at nakedness. Oh, 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 you do? Well, don't tell me out loud. Wait for the pastor's office. You know, come on, people. Is it helpful for you to be told that the thing you're doing with your husband or all alone with yourself as a woman and as a man, God forbids it. And he tells you that if you will not give yourself to nakedness, that you will live. I can't think of anything more helpful to all evangelicals today. Honestly. And so what he says here is, so that you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live. If he does them, I am the Lord. And so what we would tend to do, even if we were reading through Leviticus, we'd pull that quote out, we'd read that quote, And then we would just try to be cultivated indifferent about the specifics of the law in the context of the original statement, you know? And so the Apostle Paul doesn't quote the laws around it, but I guarantee you that the Jews knew precisely what came afterwards. Because they had not had the kind of preaching that just gives you John 3.16 over and over and over and over and over again. They had had the privilege of having the law of God preached to them to be a schoolmaster to the gospel. They didn't take a hop, skip, and a jump over the law of God. They didn't think they needed to protect their children from learning how wicked their hearts are. They didn't allow their wife to shut them up when they were opening up the sins of their children to them. I mean, come on, this isn't complicated. And so we can look at this and we can say, okay, so it's in the middle of a section But the Apostle Paul doesn't quote the section, and I'm telling you, you're wrong. Every Jew knew precisely what the context was, okay? And the Apostle Paul says it absolutely true. He says, for Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness, which is based on law, shall live by that righteousness. 
Now, here's what Moses wrote that God had said to him to write, so you shall keep my statue, by which a man shall live if he does them. It's faithful. It's a faithful quotation. And it would be natural outside the flow of the writing here in Romans to think the point being made is that keeping the law brings life, and of course it does, doesn't it? Many times the book of Proverbs warns that lawbreakers, rebels, and fools die for their sins. And they do. And an awful lot of getting older is counting up the number of people you've watched in your life die because of their sins. This is the wisdom of old age. We know the book of Proverbs is true. Okay? I'll never forget working with a youth group up in Wisconsin during my years there. My friend Kirk Coddington had asked me to help him. I hadn't known him. He owned the, hard, the True Value Hardware in town. He asked me to help him, and so it was a, a, a wonderful blessing to be able to do that work up there in Wisconsin. And the kids were not from any of our, well, the kids were not just the kids from our churches. They were from about 10 to 15 churches in the whole Friesland, Randolph, Beaverdam, Partyville, some even occasionally from Portage. That whole area, they all came, and they were in this youth group. And so you got to know a lot of kids. And I remember one night going to that youth group. And of course, this is Wisconsin, so alcohol's big. Anybody from Wisconsin? You know, we drink. And one night, I went there, and there was this sweet young woman. And her father had just died earlier that week. Why? Well, because he was a rotter. You know what I mean by a rotter? He was a man who had been evil. He had been evil. And sure enough, eventually, one of his evils was he was just a drunk, and one night he was on his way home in his pickup truck, and he was drunk, and he hit a telephone pole, and he died. And I remember thinking, here's this sweet, beautiful, young high school girl, and now her daddy is gone. And why is he gone? He's gone because he was a fool who refused to subject himself to the righteousness of God. Now, you realize I just twisted that quote. Because it means something different here in Romans than what I just used it to say. But you have to understand that if you're going to understand our passage of Scripture this morning. These things all have different meanings and play in different ways together. And you've got to keep your eye on the ball here, okay? And here is a man who refused to acknowledge that obeying the law, listening to rebuke, honoring those who disciplined them, would give them life. And that if they refused to honor God's law and to listen to rebukes, they would die. Okay? They'll die. They'll die.
And so I left the wedding ceremony yesterday. I leaned over a young man, and I love him, and I kissed him on the top of his head. Hugged him from behind as he sat. And what did I say to him? I said, you be careful. You be careful. I think I said it to him three times. He wasn't really sure why I was saying that to him. Well, he knew why I was, but he didn't know what I meant. But he's at this point in life where he is defying God. He's defying God. And I don't want him to die. And I've seen young men of this church die. I'm going to tell you a story. One morning, after I got done preaching, I'm over there greeting people in the door. And there's a young man in this church right now who, he was in high school at the time. Maybe, no, he had just graduated. And as he went out, we were friends. And he told me how much fun he'd been having. Well, how had he been having fun? Well, he told me that he and his friend had that previous week been out riding their four-wheelers. And that, uh, as he put it, we were taking the jumps at 85 miles now. That's what he said. They were in the backyard of the other boy jumping their four-wheelers at 85 miles an hour. And I looked at this boy, and I thought to myself, the first time I ever knew him, I thought, life is cheap to this boy, and I hope he doesn't die. And so I looked at him, and I said, don't do that. Right in the door of the church, don't do that. And he said, what? You know, he thought he he was sharing his good time with me. I said, don't do that. Don't, don't. Don't do what? I said, don't jump at 85 miles an hour. And he's, he's like, why not? And I said, because you'll die. You'll die. You'll die. Don't do it. So what's the end of that story? The end of that story is that that young man is now a father and a husband and was in the first service with his wife and his children. I didn't tell the story in the first service. But his friend he was jumping with, a couple weeks later, went around the corner of a certain road here and hit a tree and was killed. That's the story. And that friend had been in this church for years. And I had looked at him and I had wanted in the worst way to help him learn wisdom. But about a year before, he and his family had left the church. And I know some of you might think that the moral of the story is they shouldn't have left the church. Well, that's not my point. 
I don't think they should have, but it, 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 honestly, at this point in my life, if I were to count up the number of people that have left this church, <laughs> you know, all the pages of the world could not contain the information that I could write there. I'm quoting scripture in a different way. All right. And so by 67, you have to trust me that I have pretty thick skin about people leaving this church. And most of them have left for very good reasons because this is a university community, you know, and they graduate and have to get jobs, right? What's my point? Well, my point is the Bible is absolutely true when it tells you that if you will keep God's law, you will live. And it's not, well, let me put it a different way. It's that statement is true in this world. All right? It is true in this world. Now, I know that most of us are white here, But can I point out how determined we are to not see that truth today? I'm going to talk about George Floyd. Okay? Stories can have more than one moral. We can have the moral of the putative, aggressive behavior of a law enforcement officer that should be punished. All right? Most of us will agree with that, right? Come on, put up your hand. You'll agree with that, okay? But can we also see this is a scofflaw who has lived at the interface between rebellion and the law for over a decade? Can this be a moral of the George Floyd case too? Or am I a racist for pointing it out? (laughs) It's just like, can we stop stupefying ourselves? You know? Stories have points, plural. When the Bible says, do this and you shall live about the law of God, Proverbs from beginning to end enforces it. And it's also true, if you do not live by the law of God, you will die. And there is absolutely nothing opposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ in my saying that. Okay? This is not to preach the law without the gospel. But funny thing, God has ordained it so that the path to the gospel lies through the law. (laughs) You know? And it's so helpful. Why? Well, because it restores to us the dignity of humility. Because if there's one thing that dignifies a man in this world, it is humility. The first commandment with a promise is the fifth commandment. And it says, honor your father and your mother that your days may be prolonged in the land which your Lord your God gives you. That young man yesterday, afterwards I talked to some of his relatives. And I said, even if you don't repent, 
because of the harm it's doing to you. And even if you don't repent because of this and don't repent because of that and don't repent because of the other thing, what about your mother? What about your mother? Honor your father and your mother. That your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. Now at this point, I'm going to move through the law to the gospel. And I'm going to point out that it's not just live, but it's also live-live. And by live-live, I mean eternal life. Because the Apostle Paul is engaging in wordplay here. But it's not a joke. It's because truth often lies in between different meanings of the same word. And so, end can be goal and cessation. Remember that from a couple weeks ago, the end of the law. And it's also true that the law can be different things at different times. It can be the ceremonial, it can be the moral. And it's also true that life can mean different things. And the Apostle Paul here is using the word life in different ways. The Apostle Paul, on the one hand, is saying that It is true, okay, that Moses writes, the man who practices righteousness based on law shall live by that righteousness. And that that means that if you listen to rebuke and correction, children, parents, that you will live in this life. You'll get three score and ten, and if by virtue of strength, four score. But it's also true that if you live by the law of God, you shall live eternally. Now, that does not mean that living by the law will, excuse me, give you eternal life because you will have been infused with holiness with the beatific vision through the sacraments that you'll become good enough. That's Roman Catholicism. That's not what it's saying. What it's saying is that if you live by the law, you will live. If you live by the law, okay, who practice the righteousness based on the law, you shall live by that righteousness. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here is not just about life here on earth. It's not. But he's also talking about eternal life. And you say, oh, come on, Tim. It's like, there you go. You just did the same thing you accuse other people doing of jumping into John 3.16. It's not there in the text. 
I say, okay, all right, okay. Okay, smarty pants. Paul reasons thus from the passage in Leviticus. I'm reading from an authority. Okay. Paul reasons thus from the passage in Leviticus. Since no man attains the righteousness prescribed by the law, unless he has exactly fulfilled every part of it, and since all men have always come far short of this perfection, it is in vain for anyone to strive for salvation in this way. And he's quoting this. And he goes on and he says, Leviticus 18, the Lord promises eternal life to those who will keep his law. And we see that Paul has also taken the passage in this sense, and not of temporal life only, as some hold. It's complicated because what do you hear next? Well, what you hear is, for Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness based on law shall live by that righteousness. And then you have the adversative preposition. You have but. Okay? So what's coming after must be in opposition to what was just said. And it says, but the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. And so what we have is a righteousness not based on faith and a righteousness based on faith, right? That's why the adversative is there. But. No. It is intention. It is an adversative. But who in their right mind who has faith in Jesus Christ is going to read the statement that the man who practices the righteousness which is based on law shall live by that righteousness and think, yep, I'm the man that practices that righteousness and I'm living by that righteousness. (laughs) You know? Is that you? You know? You come to church every Sunday and you think, I'm the man that practices the righteousness that is by law, and I'm living by that, and what a life it is. We were just meeting with a couple in between the services, and Max, Pastor Carell, was talking about why he comes to church and why he needs to come to church. We were talking about the nature of self-critical capacity and confession of sin the ability to see our sin. And he said, you know, the reason I come to church is so I can be liquefied. (laughs) What's liquefaction? Well, that's the state in which you're listening to God's word and you say, I am the man. I am the man. I. And what is that? Well, that is the law being your school crossing, your your tutor to Jesus. You look at the law. Yeah, yeah, I'll live by it. But I'm so sinful. And it never ends. And if I ever get rid of one sin... It's like the seven demons come in. I just managed to repent of one sin, and the seven demons come in. What is the point? What is the point? This is like beating my head against a brick wall. 
I don't need this, <laughs> you know. I don't need to go home feeling downlifted. Right? Right? <laughs> oh. Well, okay. If you don't want to go home feeling downlifted, get with the program. And you say, I'm trying to. I said, well, you don't know what the program is, do you? You say, I thought I did. What's the program? Well, I, I try to see my sin. I confess my sin. I try to do better. I try to see my sin. I confess my sin. I try to do better. And then you say, well, do you worship Jesus and do you love Jesus? I say, well, yeah, yeah, that's in there. I say, Where? Try to see your sin. Confess your sin. Try to do better. Try to see your sin. Okay. What a friend divine. Joy divine. Leading on the everlasting arm. Where is your rest in Jesus? Where are you resting in him? And you say, well, I can't rest yet. I ain't good enough. And I say, that's why you, you better rest. And you say, well, I don't qualify for it yet. I say, when do you think you will? When you're 67? Uh-uh. I remember listening to Father Dyer at Gordon-Conwell. He was a Benedictine monk who had left and... His wife had left the, the convent, and they'd married, and now he was teaching spirituality using Laboye. And it was the cool thing to do to take this course in spirituality from an ex-Benedictine monk. And I'd I be there. And I remember the, the time in class where he told us that he had once gone to his father at the monastery, his whatever they call the top dude, and he had said to him, when am I going to stop struggling with lust? <laughs> and the father said to him, well, not when you're 85, because that's how old the father was at the time. <laughs> and so you're trying hard to see your sin and to confess it and to get better, right? But are you resting in the everlasting arms of Jesus? Are you resting? And you say, oh, I, you know, I don't believe in that watchman knee quietistic passivity. I'm an, an active man. And I do. And my response as a pastor is to say, all right, you do knock your sauce off, you know, have at it, do, 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 do. But at some point, maybe God will be merciful and you'll come under the preaching of God's law as it really is. And you will see that God is holy. And you'll see that you are filthy. 
And that probably you're most filthy precisely at the point where you take pride in your morality. And it might cause you to despair and to, are you ready for this? And to settle for the gospel. It's so gay. (laughs) You know, to cast yourself at the foot of the cross and to say, I'm hopeless. I'm absolutely, I am a piece of work. (laughs) You know, since his mama is here, and since we all grieve Adam all the time, I told Samuel this, I didn't know you were here this morning. Do you know that Godly, perfect Adam, we've all heard that he's perfect ever since he died, right? Right? Everybody going to nominate him, right? I think that we should tell the Pope, you know? Do you know that Godly Adam was told by the elders that he couldn't be an elder yet because he was a moralist? Did you know that? Did you know that? And you think, what are you trying to do? Hurt his widow and children and his mother today? And I'm saying no, because it redounds to Adam's glory. You know why? Because Adam repented. And I'm telling you, Adam's work as an elder was so beautiful because it wasn't about him being good and showing other people he was better than they were. Adam was... He just constantly reminded me of my hero, Martin Lloyd-Jones, that he was just manly in his diagnostics of sin and manly in helping people deal with him, and he never looked down on them, and he never minded the stink. (laughs) Well done. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness, which is based on law, shall live by that righteousness. But, but that but is not as much of an adversative as you think it is, and I have Calvin as my authority. That's who I was reading earlier. He says we're not just talking about temporal life. We're also talking about eternal life. What the practice of the righteousness of the law leads us to is to despair about ourselves. And it really does. For many years, the virtue that I was most committed to declaring about myself was my truthfulness. And when I got fired from a previous job, you know, I resigned, blah, 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 blah. When I got fired from my previous job, the meta-narrative was that I was a liar. And there were two particular circumstances where I was told the elders said I'd lied. But I had not lied in either one of them in the slightest, not in the slightest. You know how sometimes when you're accused of lying, you can't bring the goods forward because it would destroy things. And so that was the narrative as I left. 
And so for years, I was licking my wounds and fighting off bitterness. And I kept saying, I am not a liar. <laughs> you know, Father Joe Coughlin had prayed for me about that in junior high, and I had been a liar, but I repented and God cleaned me of it. And that was my testimony, you know. And then I began to sort of uh, awaken. <laughs> and I began to look at the way that I, now I know the word is equivocated. I began to look at the way I was smooth with the distinction between truth and falsehood, you know. And if somebody, I remember when I went into the ministry, as soon as I went in, I heard that one of the older men in my church was in the hospital. So I went to the hospital and he was lying in bed. I had been told in my course on chaplaincy that what you want to do is you want to put yourself in such a way that the person doesn't have to move one bit in order to look into your eyes. And so normally that means you stand above the bed. But in this case, the guy was lying on his side and had his head flat. And so what did I do? I knelt. <laughs> right? You see what's coming. And so I knelt and talked face to face, you know. And I got home. And a couple days later, I got a call from a woman I never heard of. And she said, Pastor Bailey, I want to tell you that I just... I am so moved, so moved by what I saw in the hospital. There you were, beside the bed of that man, on your knees, praying for him. And, you know, and she didn't cry, but I really thought she might. She just was sure that God had sent an angel. <laughs> you know, and I thought, ah, well, actually, ah, I wasn't praying, and... I was only kneeling because I've been told that you should have, you should maintain eye contact easily for the patient, you know. Well, and so, of course, uh, I, I explained that to her. And I don't know why I did, but that right there, if I had not explained that to her, it would have been a lie. Do you understand how sophisticated sin is and the devil? Do you understand how holy God is and how devious you are? We are constantly letting people think things we know aren't true, but it serves our purposes for them to think them. And this is the schoolmaster that leads us to Jesus Christ. This is the glorious grace of the law that leads us to the glorious grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because listen, until you are humble, you will never know God. And you will not be humble until you learn the holiness of God, and you cannot learn the holiness of God without the law of God. Now, I know at this point, some of you are sitting there thinking, well, 
this is a hard truth. Who can bear it? And by God's kindness, we have the disciples responding to Jesus several times as he teaches, saying those very words. And what does Jesus respond? Do you remember? Jesus' response is to say, yeah, I think I've set the bar too high. You're right. I'm being a little bit too rigid and intense. I forgot to put gospel in. You know, it is by grace. Don't forget, it is by grace. Oh, Lord, this is a difficult type teaching. Who can bear it? Well, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, but don't, don't forget, it's by grace. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> oh. Now, what he says is, with God, all things are possible. In other words, he agrees with them. This is a hard teaching. Who can bear it? He says, yeah, it is impossible. But remember, with God, all things are possible. With God, it's possible for Tim Bailey to realize he is a liar. And to take that, too, to Jesus to bear I talk to you people about your sins, and you're so resistant to hearing me. And I get so tired of it. And I say to you, why can't you be a sinner like everybody else in this congregation? What makes you special that you can be the one person here that doesn't have to listen to admonitions? Who do you think you are that you don't need Jesus? And why are you here if you don't? And immediately you respond, oh no, I need Jesus. I need Jesus. And I say, but what, over here? You know, precisely where I wasn't pointing, <laughs> you know, precisely where the elders weren't rebuking you, that's okay. But over here, I provide for my family. <laughs> you know, well, whoopee for you. It ain't too hard in America, is it? You have to be an idiot to not provide for your family in America. Or a druggie. Right? Been reading all these profiles from the New Yorker back in the 40s and 30s about the Bowery. Anybody remember about the Bowery in New York? You know? And guess what? There are a lot of men that lived in the Bowery who didn't provide for their families. Because they were in the gym, <laughs> you know? But other than that, it's pretty easy to provide for your family. And now all you have to, have to do is have children. <laughs> and the Democrats will love you. And they'll rain money on you. And so when you say, I'm a good provider, it's like, oh, well, bully, bully for you. But what about your lust? What about your lying? What about your pride? And that's the thing that just blows me away when elders and older women and pastors admonish people, how often those people will make arguments ad infinitum and I might add ad nauseum. <laughs> and all they do is prove 
that they have never realized how much pride they have. You know? And it's, it's, you feel like saying, okay, okay, forget, forget this specific and forget this specific and forget how they work together. But what about your pride? <laughs> you know? And they're like, am I proud? And it's like, duh. And then you get older and you're about to die and you're like the Apostle Paul who says, I am the chief of sinners. You remember it says that they refuse to subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Do you remember that from a couple weeks ago? They refused to, what was the word? What was the word? Come on. Uh, what was the word? Go ahead, say it. I can't hear you. What was the word? Oh, two people. And you were doing this because you're all humble. Do you remember yesterday in the wedding that Jody pointed out what a nasty word that is in connection with the wife? We really don't like the word subject, and I think I've just proven it. (laughs) You know, we don't like it. Why would we not want to subject ourselves to the righteousness of God? And it's because we're proud. We will not Go to God with empty hands. We will not do it. And so what do we do? Well, we do always what we do in such circumstances where we don't like being humiliated. We don't like being humbled. We don't think the standard is proper. We don't think that we have failed as miserably as we are being told. And we don't think God's right to do it. And so what do we do? we begin to whine. And we begin to say, oh my goodness, oh, I have to reach up to heaven. Oh, it's awful. I have to go down to the bottom of Cash's Ledge off the Atlantic coast. I have to climb. I have to dive. Oh, it's so unfair. It's so unrealistic. What am I supposed to do? It's so hard. It's unjust. The righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. (laughs) That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss. That is to bring Christ up from the dead. You see, this is what God said to the Israelites as they whined. Don't say you have to hoist yourself up into heaven. Don't say you have to dig yourself a mine. I revealed my character and perfections from heaven, bringing them down to Mount Sinai. And I wrote on a tablet, and I sent them down to you. None of you can protest that you don't know my holiness or your sinfulness. 
You don't have to climb up to heaven. I, as a matter of fact, not just the law, but the gospel, I, I sent Jesus down to you. He came down. And you didn't have to go to hell and bring him up. I raised him for, I have done everything. Everything. And don't you whine to me. I have lowered myself. And I have lifted up my son. And what? Well. But what does it say? The word is near you. In your mouth and in your heart. <laughs> that is the word of faith which we are preaching. Oh. <laughs> Don't you like to be liquefied? Isn't it beautiful? God's Holy Spirit has written the Word of God in such a way that it cuts us off at every weasel point. You know, it just is it's just unbelievably helpful because it anticipates every sin of us every objection, every whining, every complaint, every self-justification, every lack of self-critical capacity, every lie our wife tells us that she's just married to the most godly husband in the world and she's glad she has a patriarch. And there we are left, some would say decimated, I would say dignified. Finally, confessing our manhood in the likeness of our federal head, Adam. <laughs> and we can just chill out in the gospel because we're finally humble enough to be dignified. Okay? Okay? Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin in our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In him. In him. Let's pray. Father God, thank you, thank you, thank you for saving our souls and making us whole. Father, keep us from turning your church into a place of pride. Give us the gospel of the law and give us the law of the gospel. Give us the righteousness that is by faith that rests in the everlasting arms of God, we pray in Jesus' name.